But I guess if I had to go back to my 23-year-old self, I would encourage myself to be more comfortable in the discomfort of maybe not being so sure about what you want to do for your life. You're listening to the MILF Podcast. This is the show where we talk about motherhood and sexuality with amazing women with fascinating stories to share on the joys of being a MILF. Now here's your host, the MILFiest MILF I know, Jennifer Tracy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. This is MILF Podcast, the show where we talk about motherhood, entrepreneurship, sexuality, and everything in between. I'm Jennifer Tracy, your host. So I wanted to... (laughs) tell you guys a story in two parts uh, before I introduce today's guest. Uh, Because this story is very personal. It's very vulnerable. And yet it's so important that I share it because it speaks to exactly why I have this podcast, exactly why I'm here and everything I believe in about stories and women's voices and mental health. About three weeks ago, right before I interviewed April Uchitel, the CEO of Violet Gray, I was in a pole dancing class and I hit my head on the pole really hard, really, really hard. Now I've been taking pole dancing class for five years and that's never happened, but it happened that day. And it was just one of those things as a I was had my eyes closed. I thought the pole was farther away from me than it was. I whipped my head around and bam, right the front of my skull hit the pole dead on and immediately started to swell into an egg on my forehead. I was okay for the first 60 seconds, maybe two minutes. I finished my dance. I was done dancing. I said, oh, I hit my head and there's a lump and the teacher came over and felt the lump and she said, okay, uh, let's get some ice. It was a bit, it was a really big lump. And then I started crying and all the women in the class circled around me. The class was over anyway. We all went out into the lobby. They laid me down on the sofa and I just was sobbing. I was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And so two things happened. I couldn't stop crying Later, my friend Tara told me it was about two hours. I thought it was like 20 minutes, 30 minutes. She's like, no, honey, you were crying for like two hours. And I was crying. I was I was crying for all these different reasons. I was grieving over the loss of my marriage. I was grieving over the loss of my friend who took her life in October. It just was pouring out of me. And it was like the hit on the head just like opened this like a dam opening, you know? And so that's one thing that happened. The second thing that happened is that I was so embarrassed, not just that I'd hit my head on a pole in a stripper, in a a stripper pole in a pole dancing class, which is a very safe, loving, nurturing environment full of women. It's just a beautiful place where it's not, it's not um, about being exploitative. It's, it's very loving and nurturing, but I was embarrassed I was embarrassed of that. I was embarrassed that I was having these emotions and that people felt a desire to care for me. I felt like a terrible burden. I felt like, no, 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 go, you have kids, you have appointments, go, go, go. And they said, no, no, no. People that had to go went and we're staying because we want to stay. And you would do the same thing if it was one of us. And I knew at the core of me that that was right because of course I would. I love helping whenever I can. 
And for me, being of service to another human being is like the lifeblood of my journey. (laughs) And yet it was so hard for me to accept this love and this nurturing. And I just wanted to be invisible. So there was a big lesson in that for me. And then I had a huge egg on my head for a good, I still have a lump, but it's much smaller now. But I had an egg for at least 10 days and a huge black eye on both eyes that just kept growing and changing. And it was dark and got darker. And then it was yellow and green and it was really bad. And so I had this kind of story going along with it. Uh, And then a few days ago, I had this other experience. This is the second part of my story. And then I am going to introduce our guest today. I was having very severe suicidal ideation. For those of you who don't know what suicidal ideation is, it's when you are thinking about killing yourself, thinking about ending your life, thinking about wishing to be dead, that kind of thing. I haven't had this in many, 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 many years. And as I've shared on the show, I've been treated for depression um, since I was in my early 20s. And I was treated for postpartum depression uh, two years after my son was born. So I'm very familiar with this feeling and these thoughts. And it came on extremely suddenly and it scared me. But it also was very insidious and and divisive. And what was happening was I was dissociating from myself. So I wasn't emotional about it at all. It was just very like I was making a grocery list in my head. After about 48 hours of this, I reached out to two people. I reached out to my therapist and I reached out to one of my best friends. And they came in immediately and brought me to the psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, okay, you are going to UCLA. I'm going to call ahead. They're going to examine your your head and your neural functions to see about this lump on your head, even though it's two, at that point it was two weeks old. And then they're going to eval- give you a psych evaluation. And so my friend drove me to the ER and they checked me in and they asked me all these questions and they said, here's your scrubs. They were going to give me a gown, but thank God they didn't because I'm almost six feet tall and it would have been like I was practically naked and it was cold in there. So they found these scrubs and they let me wear the scrubs, but they took my clothing. They took my personal effects. They went through my things, you know, they, and I was completely compliant, but it was such a lesson in asking for help before you know, before it got, and, and, and everyone that was there, the nurses, the doctor that came and examined me, particularly the psych, the two psychiatrists that came and examined me and evaluated me so that I could go home. They, they were detaining me. They said, we have to detain you because you said you've been having these thoughts. I said, absolutely. I want to be safe. I need to be stable. I have a child. I just, even though this is very vulnerable and it's scary and there's such a stigma around mental health, and, you know, psychiatry, I just think it's so important to share that it cannot be ignored when this is happening to you, no matter how small you think it is, no matter how insignificant, no matter how much of an inconvenience you think it might be to someone else, it'd be a lot more inconvenient if you kill yourself, if you harm yourself, if you harm someone else. These thoughts are not healthy thoughts. They're not, they're not your brain in its best normal function. 
And so accepting that help from my friends and my family and even my ex-husband who came to watch our son so that I could go to the hospital was really hard again, just as it was with the women circling around me. It was so hard to accept the help. And yet everyone kept saying, I'm so glad you reached out. I'm so glad you said something. I'm so glad we're here. And at the end of the day, after I was, you know, a 12 hour ordeal and I was back home safe with several therapy appointments, psychiatry appointments lined up day after day, you know, we're, I'm on a path to, to getting better. And, and it is the three month uh, mark of my friend taking her life. That's part of it. The head trauma was a big part of it. There's a lot of research that substantiates, correlates, excuse me, head injury with depression, particularly with people who have had a history of depression. So I think there are a lot of things were coalescing to have this incident happen. Um, and the fact that it came on so quickly, I just, it was really important to me to share this with you guys because I love you guys so much. And I also want to walk the talk because my whole thing is we have to share our stories. And this is a huge part of my story and it's current and I'm in it and I'm still in it and I'm still asking for help. And, uh, you know, we don't do this alone. We don't do this alone and we don't have to do it alone. I just want to offer that to you guys and just call somebody, call a friend, call 911, really, because there's, there's nothing, it's not, it's not okay to be thinking those thoughts. I mean, it's, it's okay that you're, you're in the space that you're in, but it, you, you can get help and it will get better and it will change. And that was my experience. Anyway, at this point, I'm rambling, but it's the perfect segue because I'm going to introduce today's guest, Dr. Sarah Sarkis, who is a psychologist who lives in Hawaii. We talked so much about everything I just talked about. This was before this happened to me, but we talked about that. We talked about my friend's death. We talked about different diagnoses. We talked about general mental health. She's brilliant. She's funny. She's incredibly witty. I really love talking with Sarah, and I hope you guys enjoy my conversation with her. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, Dr. Sarah Sarkis. Am I saying your name correctly? You are saying it correctly. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for being on the show, number one. Thank you for having me. And you are in Hawaii. What, what island are you on? I'm on Oahu. You're on Oahu. I'm okay. not native to Hawaiian. To Hawaii, you're you're, <laughs> you're, you're from uh, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right, right. Sorry. Yeah. But so I just want to say at the start of this, so we're doing this on online, obviously, because I'm in California. I don't know why I'm not hearing. We're having some technical difficulties. That ha this happens to me often when I do the online. I can't see Sarah, and so she can see me, but I can't see her. So this is going to be a first. For As me. a shrink, it's a real metaphor, right? Because ah. most of the patients in my life, right? And I know them and see them at a much deeper level than they see me. So right. this is staying within the metaphor of my wheelhouse. Oh, I like that. Say that one more time. You see them much deeper, right? Because you're yeah. focused on that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. If you go to a shrink and you end up knowing the shrink, better than they know you and you know yourself. They're not doing their job. <laughs> Get your money back. Yeah, exactly. Totally. So you're from Massachusetts. I went to BU, by the way. Oh, nice. Terriers. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. So you grew up in freezing cold I did. weather. And what was that like? What was the childhood like in, in 
in Boston or outside Boston? Outside Boston. I lived like 35 minutes sort of southwest of the city. Okay. Um, in a town called Westwood. Anybody out there listening from the East Coast? And yeah, it was uh, very cold. But we were, I, I come from a big family, so I'm the youngest of six. And so for probably reasons of simplicity, we were not like a skiing family. We were a warm weather family. So on vacations, we always went to warm weather places, mostly Florida. And that's probably where I like, you know, fell in love with the beach. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and I have first cousins who were born and raised in Hawaii, which is how I uh, ended up. And we all went to college together at Georgetown. And so the first time I came to Hawaii, I was a freshman at Georgetown and my cousin took me home with her. And I was like, what <laughs> to my world right now? Yeah. So how quickly after you finished college did you get to Hawaii? Oh, decades. Um, okay. I never even, although every time I came here, I would think to myself, like, why aren't you living here? Mm -hmm. But I was, you know, in hot pursuit. I was super focused in my 20s on like, I was getting my master's and then my doctorate. And so I really stuck to what was going to, I just lived wherever I was going to get the opportunity right. to study next. Um, and right. then when I was 37, I was married. I had my child really almost on a whim. It, it just, an opportunity availed itself, particularly to my husband for a job. And we were on vacation here in February and like late February on the big Island. And then he saw this job. He's like, I think we could, uh, I think I could be like competitive for this. And meanwhile, you, I mean, the scene, it's like, it, I couldn't have written it better. We were landing at the Kona airport and I like put my hand on his leg. I'm like, listen, just this once, can you not go into fantasy land and tell me that we're going to move to Hawaii. Let's just try to embrace the now and be on vacation. I give him this whole new age spiel. <laughs> Five weeks later, we were living on Oahu. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's wow. a true story. <laughs> That's incredible. How old was your child? You have a Two. boy or a girl? A boy, Luke. Luke. Oh. Wow. So, so you guys moved to Hawaii five weeks later because he was little and you didn't have to take him out of school. But what about your profession and your business and your, did you have, you know, I've always had, ever since I, um, you know, I went through all my training and did my postdoc and I was pretty clear during my graduate training, what I thought I wanted to do. So I had that. I had a private practice partly that worked with like, you know, people like you and me, just like I have now. So I guess yeah. in, the, in the industry, we'd call it a, a practice with sort of high functioning neurotics. And, <laughs> you know, that's the best we can be. And um, I me, also, right. yeah, me too. <laughs> and then I had um, a small forensic practice where I did and that I worked like with a company on that at a company um, where I did like evaluations for court ordered matters. So it could be, you know, serious mm. stuff. It could be family disputes, but you, mm. you know, they had teams of psychologists that would sure 
write these evaluations. Um, so basically, to answer your question, when it came time to being able to say yes to this adventure, I was self-employed and I just closed my practice and moved to Oahu and replicated my private practice in this part of the country. And you had a toddler. I had a two-year-old. Yeah. I mean, that's I know. pretty astounding. So, and uh, I'm jealous. I'm having a jealous moment, which I have to say is rare because I, I have a relationship to Hawaii. So my parents uh, bought a condo there in the 90s and we'd always vacationed on Maui. Uh-huh. And then they had a house there part of the time. I'm from Denver. So I grew up in a sort of cold climate, nothing like Massachusetts, but, and I always thought, oh, I'll end up there at some point or, you know, and then they sold it and they moved here. So they're closer to me, which is great. We live in California, but I miss it. I haven't been in a long time. And um, I love that you built a life there because there is something magical about the islands and something very healing and you're in a healing practice. So you, you have a toddler, you're married, you, you move house, you move everything, you build a new practice, boom. Then what yeah. happens? <laughs> yeah. So it, it actually, you know, and Hawaii is, I agree with you completely, and Maui in particular has a very kind of supernatural feeling to yes. how green it is. And there's parts oh, yeah. of Maui that remind me of Colorado with those big, tall yes. forests and trees. Yeah. Yes. Um, I really love Maui. And every island has its own unique vibe. Yeah. Um, all of that is true. But, you know, in the interest of being truthful, the move was. Um, like a lot of things, I think, in life, it had a lot of grit to it and a lot that wasn't romantic. Mm. And, you know, life got in the way. I moved. My mom got sick. She died mm. within 10 months. Oh. Um, yeah. So it, it was an adjustment. And what I think I, but all of those things now, nine years later, have shaped me in such beautiful ways that I wouldn't change a thing. Mm. Um, But I will say, you know, one of the things that I got moving to Hawaii and I realized how ignorant I was of this before was that I really experienced culture shock. Yes. I moved from a place that is so different right down to the way that the culture that I grew up in communicates to the way that this beautiful culture communicates. It's so different. And so I just had a probably like a two to three year period where, you know, I was building my practice and having a great time, but there was a subtext that I was like, what have I done to my life? Right. (laughs) Right. You know, total fish out of water, totally a fish out of water. And, you know, and I have family here and deep roots and stuff that um, anchored me. So I can really appreciate now people who move and relocate to foreign lands that are just like, and like often it's out of your country. Right. I still had the safety and protection of like, oh, I'm in America. Right. You know, so, um, but yeah, I mean, then we started building a life here slowly, but surely we sort of, you know, put it together. And in terms of my practice, it took about a year to be full, but I had patients. No, it was nothing. (laughs) I had patients like within, I gave myself 10 weeks. I said, when you land, you have 10 weeks to like get the home together, get my son settled and then 
you have to get out there and you have to start networking. You have to start to look for an office. Um, so, you know, within four months of being here, I had a small handful of patients. That's impressive. And I'm sorry, you said you're the youngest of six? Yeah, youngest of six. So do you attribute a lot of your moxie to that of like you, you had to do shit or you were going to be forgotten? Totally. I mean, I think, yeah, the vast majority of my personality probably is owed to the fact that I was born the youngest of six. And by the way, all of my siblings are like strong, dynamic personalities. There are no wallflowers in the crew. Yeah. So, um, so you really can, had to stake your claim. I can thank them. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And being boss, like from Boston, you know, Yes. You, there's a certain type of straightforwardness and um oh I love it. I love Boston. Yeah. I miss it. Do yeah. you miss it? Uh now so it's so funny to think about that's such a good question. So okay, let's be clear. I still don't miss an ounce of winter. No. And essentially the weather is the thing that keeps me from contemplating the maybe there could be another chapter there. I'm like, you can't change that. And it's just so miserable. And now seeing what it's like to be outdoors and in nature 360 days of the year, heaven. I don't think I can go back, right? Yeah. But there's tons I miss about Boston now. Yeah, yeah it's improved my relationship with Boston. Moving improved my relationship with Boston. Um, I miss the sports. I miss the food. I miss like certain parts of downtown Boston with like the cobblestone streets and that sort of like old world kind of charm. And then I really miss um, the frankness. Yeah, it is refreshing. It's a very, um, I think, I don't know if you use the word straightforward, but it does feel like they just get right to it. And I really appreciate that in a different way than New Yorkers. Yes. Wow. And do you visit there at all anymore? Or you yeah. don't have any family? You still have family there. Oh, yeah. Okay. Most of my family uh, lives back east. Um, and I get back. I try to do, I don't think since living here, we've ever gone longer than two years. And like the last couple of years, I've gone every year. Wow. Yeah. And so that's a long flight. What is that? A 12 hour flight? Yeah, it's 12 hours. But you know, once you're five hours from the nearest landmass, something shifts inside your body about distance. Uh, you know, like something like now flying to California, I'm like, well, it's just California. Right. It's nothing. But like in not Boston, I would have been like, oh my God, it's all the way across <laughs> the country. <laughs> right, right. And so it is a long trip, but you know, you just know that that's the price of living here and right. you kind of just cope with it. Yeah. Sometimes it. I'll break it up with a trip, a stop in Los Angeles. Right. I'll stay a night or two with some friends in LA. Right. Let me know when you do. We'll go to lunch. I will. I will do okay. that for sure. Really, please. I'm going to um, take you up on that. Yeah, please. Because I just had... um Another guest who came from New York, Brooke Christian, and uh, and we had lunch on Tuesday. We went so to nice. the Ivy on Robertson, and it was just so cool to meet her in person and yes. chat, you know, chat in private, which was nice too. Yeah, so I would love that. I will do um, that for sure. Please do. So you're living in paradise. You have a toddler. You now have a practice, a full fledged practice. 
Tell me about your practice because it's very interesting the way that your website is set up and what you've told me that you do. And it's just really interesting. So go. <laughs> how, or how did it start? Like, so you go back to that place where you yeah, are. So, I mean, I guess I would say about my practice now, and I'm sure it will be different in five years because it's so different than where it was five years ago. But now I work a lot with like functional medicines and naturopathic doctors. Um, and I for sure still work within the mainstream allopathic medical community because that's unavoidable when you're running you know, a complex private practice that sees a full spectrum of can psychological we, just needs. Just for the listeners and myself, can you define allopathic? It, like any Western, sort of standard okay. Western practice. Okay. okay. And um, so, but I have increasingly found myself, I would say probably 10 years ago, so even before I moved here, I had really started to move deeper and deeper in a direction of realizing that if we continue to isolate each like sub specialty, you know, like the, the heart person takes care of the heart. And so mm -hmm. the shrink takes care of the head that my patients were feeling, you know, they might have some movement on the needle, but it wasn't what my type A wanted for them. I didn't right. want them to have the absence of feeling crappy. I want them to have the presence of feeling well. Mm. And so I increasingly just found, and you know, I was doing it in my own life. I had my own stuff going on that I was really trying to figure out like, okay, what's going to be a solution-based approach here that's going to help me feel better from, you know, my own particular stuff. So mm -hmm. I found functional medicine. And in particular, probably the first person I found was Mark Hyman. And uh, then that sent me in all these other directions. So I started to talk about it with my clients. So now, fast forward 10 years later, and I'm, I really feel privileged. I have a private practice that most of my patients sort of are operating in this world now. They understand the notion that how you interact with your own relationship with yourself one of the most valuable efforts you can make toward feeling well and mm. that it falls in line with feeding yourself nourishing food, that it falls in line with getting eight hours of sleep and all these sort of simple but actually kind of rare things these days. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's really kind of how it evolved. And then now I sort now my practice, I have a lot of like executives that I work with here in the community and people who are, well, it's actually men that taught me this principle. Um, I decided a year and a half ago that I basically, my practice at the time was 70% women and 30% mm. men. And it had been that way since the start, right? And I got three brothers. I can jive with boys. I got a son. I mean, I'm raising, right? right? Yes. Um, so I basically thought to myself, what if you tried to switch that ratio over this next year? And you had 70% men and 30% women. So over the year, you know, when I would get vacancies, I would just wait for a male to call. Mm -hmm. and I would, you know, see more and more men. So now... 
what I've realized is that a lot of men come in and they talk about their sense of wellness through this language of performance. And once I got that, I was like, oh, that's my in. Because they're actually willing to do the emotional introspection if they know there's going to be a return on investment that's Mm. sort of tangible. It's just Mm -hmm. how their brain is wired. Yeah. Now my practice sort of has this other realm that it's evolved into, which is also super fun. And I've gotten some of these guys to be super interested in like, you know, what you feed your brain contributes to your mood. They are not disconnected concepts. Mm-hmm. So it's been great. So say more about that, what, what you feed your brain. What do you mean by that? Because you're not talking about smoothies. You're talking about actually content that you put in your eyeballs and your ears, right? I, I'm well, guessing. I'm talking about both. Okay. Yes. So I actually am talking about like, I, I try to have all my patients meet with some kind of nutritionist. Mm -hmm. It can be wrapped up in your primary care person if they are um, interested in this world. What I was finding a lot of times was that when I would go to Western doctors and they were helpful, but when I would try to talk about like food and stuff, like what can I eat, there really wasn't much feedback. And I guess what I'm learning now from like listening more and more to people like Mark Hyman is that they don't actually teach that at medical school. And so uh, I think for a while he was trying to get it back into the medical school curriculum. Um, There's no nutrition or maybe there's like a day, but there's maybe there's a day. Maybe there's like a, you know, a CE you have to take, but there's not like an ongoing discussion about the ways in which food can participate in keeping you well. And And why do you think that is? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Why do you, why do you think that is, why do you think that's absent in traditional Western, basically in traditional Western medicine, but especially in the medical schooling? I mean, I'm no expert and I didn't go to med school, but I'm never short of opinions. So yeah. we can, you know, this should be taken with a And I'm asking, so. Exactly, a serious grain of salt. But I assume that it also reflects that, first of all, medicine is based in figuring out pathology. And that's an important, like my mother died of colon cancer and, you know, she was somebody who was going to what we'd call integrative or complementary or alternative doctors, but never went to a Western doctor. And lo and behold, nobody found the cancer. So seeking for pathology is something that I do believe has a lot of value, but I crave it being balanced with an understanding that you have to pay equal investment in trying to keep the vessel from getting sick. Prevention. Yes. Yeah. And so I think probably that that's one thing that first of all, I think Western medicine is pathology based and, you know, there's real merit for that. And the second um, is that I think that there is a relationship between this focused on pathology and then having to find something to fix the pathology. So that can come in lots of forms, but the sort of the easiest target in that bullseye is there is for me an uncomfortable relationship between the pharmaceutical industries and how 
met how frequent the first line of approach is a prescription. Mm-hmm. And for mm-hmm. me, as a psychologist, the way that I would see it is I would have 24, 25, 26-year-olds coming in, and they'd be on at least an antidepressant for sure. They'd probably have an anti-anxiety medication like a benzodiazepine for PRN use. What does that mean, PRN use? As needed. Oh, uh-huh. Okay. And then, you know, there'd maybe also be some sort of low-grade stimulant in there because the antidepressants cause lethargy and all kinds of other things, right? And so for me, what I was seeing was just so many people coming in that I couldn't even really get like a baseline understanding of who they were. Mm-hmm. Like, who are you mm-hmm. at baseline? Um, you know, and there, you know, I have to say now I'm almost 20 years, 17 years with a private practice or working within the private practice setting. And, you know, mental, there are mental illnesses that are very real and they cannot be acupunctured away and they yes. can't, right? And, but that's not the vast majority of them. Right. Well, I, I just want to point out, first of all, thank you for saying that, for everything you just said. But what you just said resonates so deeply with me because I just lost my best friend in the world um, to bipolar. She mm-hmm. had been treated for many, many years successfully. And uh, long story short, she ended up ending her life this past October um, after going off her meds because she wanted, she and her husband wanted to have a child. And um, I think that it's so important. There's room for all of that, right? There's room for, for all of the, you know, I'm very into Eastern and, and holistic and, and all of that. But sometimes there are these disorders that the person really needs to be on medication. I completely agree. And I'm so sorry to hear about your friend. Thank you. Um, it's awful. And it changes the lives of everybody that orbited in somebody's sphere who dies by suicide. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm glad that I had the opportunity to say that because I often don't want to come across as though I have some idealized version of the human condition. I don't. But I know that the vast majority of times there are things that we can do for ourselves Yes, absolutely. They, you know, that, that make a huge difference. Now, bipolar is one of those, Ill, there's a sort of a short list of scenarios where I would essentially requ- require medication compliance in order to work on the case because they are right. so volatile and right. so susceptible to um, suicide. And yeah. major suicidal depression is one of them and bipolar is the other. Yeah. Yeah, it's something that, you know, up until we know better, we just don't either, we don't have the science for it right now, or this is the best it's going to be. Medication is really necessary in those cases. Yeah. And I mean, I don't, I have had depression and anxiety my whole life. I'm also uh, sober. I haven't had a drink or a drug in 20 years. So I know that is a piece of myself, like an addiction quality. But I had really bad postpartum depression um, after having had depression, like, like I said, off and on throughout my life. And I am currently still on 20 milligrams of Prozac per day. Mm-hmm. And it's just a very, you know, it keeps the the bottom from dropping out. Totally. But I also hear too often, so often of 
none of my close friends, because many of my friends are sober also, but so many people just have Xanax, have Ambien. They just have all these things. I'm like, who is giving you guys all these drugs? And why? And, and, and so I, I also feel like, and I'm not even in the medical profession. I'm just, you know, your average lady, but it feels like it's everywhere. And it's just like, who's giving you this? And also who's supervising you after they've given you this? Yeah. I mean, I'm so far removed from that world that I can only conjecture that there ain't a lot of supervision and you know, you can, I can tell the difference when a client walks in who has conscientious psychiatric care. And I have clinicians here who I, there's, you know, a handful that over the years that I've really come to value their consultation when I'll have like a complex case where I'm like, hmm, maybe there is some sort of mood component here, or there may be, you know, some suicidality. And when you find a gem like that, it's awesome because there is, um, you know, I read, I'm I'm writing this, my next essay will be um, this thing on epigenetics and neuroplasticity and what that means for the field of psychology. Yeah. So it'll be, it's it's a really fun, it's fun one. Thanks. Um, And I was reading this statistic. I'll probably butcher it, but at least I'll have it footnoted in the pod, in the, uh, in the blog. Um, Americans can, Americans are 5% of the world population, but they Mm. consume, we consume Mm. 66% of Ugh. all the phar- the psychopharmaceuticals oh my gosh produced in the world oh my god so, that is horrifying yeah so you know you're feeling that you'll listen to your friends and be like where is this coming from how mm. are they getting this you know i don't think you're crazy i don't have concrete i mean i have that statistic and i have what i see coming in and out of my office yeah i know that one of the biggest risks on high school campuses right now is Adderall. Oh yes. I've heard that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's cocaine basically. It's like one molecular salt away from it or some silliness. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I've seen some cases. I always want to be moderate because I'm by nature, I am not a, you know, I try to be a person of science, you know, really try to take a case and look at it. Um, objectively. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I have seen cases like, you know, if my child was failing out of school, secondary to inattention and impulsivity, sure. I can't say I wouldn't try it either. But I don't think that the vast majority of people that are being prescribed it are failing or failing. I think it's right. often prescribed long before other things could be explored. Yeah. And, the, and also, there's probably, I'm sorry to interrupt you, yep. just because there's, there's, a, there's a resource issue here as well. Totally. So, for example, you know, my son, I'm, I'm very, very blessed. And my ex-husband and I are blessed. And, and, but my child was diagnosed with dyslexia and um, something called um, central auditory processing disorder, which is, mm-hmm. you know what that is, but for I our do. listeners, it's... Um, where you have trouble hearing things if there's any kind of noise. That's the short version of what it is. So in a, in a normal classroom, he was in this darling little private school, 
like a little cottage. It looked like Harry Potter school. And there were 24 kids and two teachers and he could not focus. He couldn't concentrate. We had the means and the resources to go to a nutritionist, to go to a psychologist, to get him fully assessed, to then discover he needed to be in a specialized school where there's five or six kids in a classroom and special teachers. And But we could afford that. Like, And I, when I went to this Dyslexia International Dyslexia Convention last year, it was great to meet so many parents from all different socioeconomic levels and all different cultures who were struggling. And this one woman, I sat next to her and she said, oh, she was so sweet and and humble and gracious. And she just told me, you know, not in a, in a martyr sort of way, but about what she has to do on a daily basis to fight with the public school system to get her son the support he needs in his public school. And I just thought, that's your life. Like that, I couldn't do any of this. I couldn't do the podcast. I couldn't do any of this. It would all be about that. And so I get where if someone is, you know, in a different place, socioeconomically, uh, culturally, racially, um, ethnic, all of those differences, right? That if the doctor said, here, your kid's not paying attention to have him take this pill, you're going to say yes. You're going to say, okay, thank you. I hundred percent of that shit, and I don't have the money, and I don't have the time. But so it, my heart aches, and yet that is one, maybe one piece, just based on my tiny slice of experience. I it's a huge piece of it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a huge piece of it, and I like the way you said it. That it's a um, issue of resources. It's true. It's that um, there is the current system is not designed to make this these kinds of pursuits available to people who don't have disposable income right. unfortunately you know we have a system where what is covered is covered and what mm-hmm. is not is your responsibility um, and that's easier said than done for the vast majority of families out yeah. there yeah it is it's a real it's a it's a shame and it is heartbreaking and same for, you know, someone with a mental disorder. I mean, I, the the tenting here in Los Angeles, the homeless tenting problem just breaks my heart every day. And I, I want to pull my hair out because I don't know what I can personally do about it, except maybe talk about it on this show and raise awareness and donate money as much as I can. And But it's most of those people I know from personal experience are not all, but many of those people have have mental disorders or addictions and there's not support for them. And I know I don't want to veer off too far because I want to get back to you, but it's just an interesting um, transgression on on the topic of medication and, you know, big farm, big pharmacy or big, is that what it's called? Big pharmacy, big pharmaca, whatever. (sighs) Anyway, I'm getting off track. so, So you have this integrative practice where it sounds like, I mean, like if I came to you, um, let's say I'm Bill and I come to you and I'm having horrible anxiety and, you know, um, I work in 60 hours a week at a job and I, I've been brought to you for therapy. Um, and I'm on, you know, three different kinds of medication from Dr. John Doe in Kansas. What, what would you, what would your, I mean, I, I, this is just a crazy sketch scenario that you can't probably give me a full answer because you'd have to do it like six weeks of diagnosis. I don't know. But what would you, what would you do? Would you say you have to see a nutritionist? You have to see, I mean. 
So the first thing I would do is just have them in for an intake and, you know, really just try to spend the the appointments are 50, about 50 minutes long. We would spend the whole hour being just really curious about what it is that made Bill come to me at this moment of time. And Mm -hmm. I just try to understand that context. The other stuff has to come later when you've really built the 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 intimacy of a therapeutic relationship where and that you've laid some groundwork in the therapeutic process so that they could safely try to see if they can tweak their medications, right? And and I would send them off to somebody else to do that component of it. And then yeah, I mean, if they get really interested in it and I have yet to have that many people. I mean, it must be a small handful of people that haven't been really curious. And that's not because I'm the best salesman. It's because people are dying for information. They're dying for resources to try to better. They want to fucking feel better. (laughs) Yeah. They just want to fucking feel better. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Um, So, you know, then I'll refer them out. And then the therapeutic part, the, the place where I really work is I, I, um, I had to summarize myself, although I really loathe this, this uh, task, but I would say that the sweet spot that I think I have a talent for is that, so we all have these, this, these behaviors we do, right? And mm-hmm. we, they are sort of fixed in our wiring and there's this whole host of them that are conscious to us. And that's in the first appointment, what the person talks to me about. They talk to me about everything they're conscious of, and that's valuable. It provides us a starting space, and it's safe. The person's telling you, these are the things I feel safe to talk to you about. So you start there. But fairly soon, you know, within six to 10 sessions, you're going to start to see, or I start to see, the, the flip side of those conscious behaviors, which are the unconscious behaviors and the unconscious fuel sources that contribute to all these, that contributes to a vast majority of how you respond to the world. And yet you're completely unaware that that's what's operating. So right. when we really get into the deeper work of therapy, the way that I work in, in my particular training now is that we try to move things from the unconscious to the conscious. And all of that is in the effort that you, as you deeply know yourself, for men, you, can, you will perform better. You will feel better. You will have more energy. You will feel more grounded in what your you know vision is for your career. So that's the spectrum in which a lot of the therapy unrolls. Mm-hmm. And what about for women? You know, very similar, um, very similar arc points of what is it that drives us to oh my, my god, god. My I love that. <laughs> my dog just pushed his nose into frame. I'm so I happy. Know. I secretly wanted I have a cat who I wanted to make a cameo, but being very cat-like, oh. she isn't. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um I forget what I was saying. That sorry, was so awesome. Women, sorry, sorry. Yeah. So the, the women, women, you know, we all have, I mean, we are all more human than otherwise, right? I mean, gender yeah. mediates a lot, but we are all more human than otherwise. So there's a lot that overlaps. What I would say is that I find processing styles are different yeah. and 
the way that we experience and express the various stuff that people come in to digest. I'll say this about diagnoses. Uh, uh, my practice follows the same as the national norms. The vast majority of who's coming into my office endorse two psychiatric symptoms, depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Those are global terms. There's lots of subcategories underneath them. But underneath all th those diagnoses to me are just diagnoses. They're really just sort of a code you use to get the health insurance to pay mm -hmm. for it. They don't actually guide much mm -hmm. as you have to really deeply know the person that's sitting across from you. Right. Wow. Okay. So now can you tell me about the padded room? Oh, my blog. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I love the name. Yeah. Well, I've heard people get very offended by the name. Um, really? I yeah, I know. But it's my Boston humor. I can't help it. I'm dark. I'm dark and stormy. I mean, um, you're on the Bill's podcast, so you're talking to the right, right girl. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You can relate. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, I liked the padded room because it's literally a virtual room. So, for me, it was the irony. Um, yeah. I started that year, um, maybe four years ago now, but I didn't really turn my attention to it until two years ago. That's an example of like anybody who's listening and has something in their mind that they think they're just like, oh, this is just going to be like a silly hobby. And like, eh, I don't want to create the time create the time. It's the most rewarding. I mean, I love seeing my patients and it's fabulous, right? But in terms of like new challenges and new a new vehicle for expression, the padded room is the most fun I have had since honest to God, I don't remember when. And I'm talking, it must have been my youth. That's so great. Well, you're still in your youth, honey. <laughs> <laughs> You're still in your youth. So why do you think it is that it is the most fun you've had in a long, as long as you can remember? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, okay. So growing up, I was always somebody who, like, I wasn't like a great student. I was an, I was athletic and that sort of, I got to kind of coast on that then, but I was always a good writer. Like I just had in, you know, somewhere just my brain chemistry words now, and of course now they fail me, but words come easily to me. Right. Yeah. So for years throughout high school and stuff, uh, and then like sophomore year, I became a You're much Gemini? more. What's your birthday? Aquarius. Oh, okay. You must have some Gemini in there though. Maybe, maybe yeah. it's tousled in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did writing and at, I, at college, I was an English major and I was a psych major. But when I got out of college, I just had this feeling like I have to find a career that I can support myself. And I was always interested. Writer in isn't at the top of that. List. Oh God. I was so terrified of the notion that I would be like unstructured and thrown into the world to like, I, I envied the tough, like gritty w women that were leaving Georgetown who were like going to New York City to hoof it. And I was just like, oh my God, were I to be Underrated. That? Underrated. <laughs> I should have done what you did. I mean, I, I did that. I, that was, I was one of those. I know. Girls. I love it. it I, the, Why do you the, say it's yeah. underrated? For me, well, here, to echo what you said about your own life, the hardships that I faced and the 
the mirror of my own self-worth that I had to finally face up to over a long stretch of time, knocking on the doors, trying to get acting jobs, trying to, you know, do all that stuff. It just, it broke me down in a way that now I'm super grateful for everything that happened and I wouldn't change it. However, (laughs) you know, I think there's a lot to be said and it just wasn't in my makeup. It wasn't what I wanted to pursue, but there's a lot to be said for pursuing something that does have a structure, that does have an end game, that does have something where you can say, hey, I have this certificate and it, you know, I can, I can serve this part of the public with this skill. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny you're saying that. That's what my mom always said. Like I was like, I would say to my mom, I'd be like, well, you know, what if I don't want to be a psychologist forever? She's like, Sarah, you've got to stop at the forever. You'll have it and nobody can ever take it from you. And Mm -hmm. I just thought that was like, you know, it's echoing the sentiment that you're saying. So yeah, I appreciate that. But I always admired women like you who were just like out there, like badass, like I'll pay the bills the way that I have to. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I just went and I, I, and I'm glad I did, you know, I enjoy my practice, but I guess if I had to go back to my 23 year old self, I would encourage myself to be more comfortable in the discomfort of maybe not being so sure about what you want to do for your life. Yeah, I think I could have really benefited from that. But, you know, that's all wasted on youth now. Oh, and yeah. We don't know. I mean, we don't know. I mean, I talk don't. about anxiety. The anxiety I used to have in my 20s over nothing, over nothing. nothing. <laughs> like I was single. I had no children. I could sleep till 9 a.m. And now I'm like, you idiot. Like, what were you even worried about? But you don't know when you're but young. But there's a beauty. You know, the thing too that I love, I love working with 20 something so much, especially women, um, or young women, there's a righteousness in your twenties. You mm. just are so sure that it's what true. you're sure of, and it takes you, you know, it really, for it's most true. of us, we can ride that to our thirties where you get more, you start to get a little more grounded and it, there is a beauty to it. But yeah, yeah I do look back at that life and think like, Oh my God, why did you like what what was happening? What was yeah, happening? happening? Were, what yeah. what why was this boy who didn't love you? It was unrequited love. Why was this so important? Or why did you think your ass was big? Like, why did you I look at pictures of myself? I'm like, my God, I was a knockout. What was I thinking? I know. <laughs> but it's so yeah. Yeah. So the padded room has been my ode. Basically, <laughs> once my mother died, I, I sort of had this, you know, I don't know. I just, as people who have lost their mother, you have this unanchoring. Mm. And I was very unmoored. And I just thought to myself, and I hadn't written other than the academic work of my master's and my doctorate, I hadn't written in a decade. I mean, I literally hadn't sat down and written a single solitary meaningful piece. I was just doing life. I was working. I was so I decided to do that and now I love it so much. I mean, in many ways all of my efforts like with coming and meeting this wider circle of people like you and other people along the way that have been willing to, to talk with me is because I um started to try to research like what it takes nowadays to write a book. And one of the things I continue to come up against is this realization. Everybody I speak to is like, you have to have a platform. You have to have a platform. 
And for the people out there that don't know code for platform, they mean an audience. And when they mean audience, they mean you have to have social media presence. And, you know, I'm a social outgoing person, but I'm basically introverted. I like to write all day. I mean, I would be somebody who could sit home and write eight hours a day and see no other human beings perfectly comfortably. Mm-hmm. And so that's when, and that was in 2007, duh, maybe 2016. So that's when I said to myself, like, okay, so this is the game that you have to play. And if you, if you keep saying you want to play it, then get busy playing it. Yeah. And that's when I really started, like, I was like, okay, I'm going to produce at least two pieces a month. I'm going to contact people to talk. I'm going to start to risk putting myself out there because who knows where it will take me. And I know that doing nothing will take me nowhere. Wow. I I love your moxie. And I just want to say that you did that with me. I think you had to email me many times, two or three times. Totally. And then I was like, Oh my God, of course. Like I don't, and I don't even remember why I didn't respond the first time. It certainly wasn't a personal thing. And I also want to just say that to people out there when you eat, when you contact someone and I, I do this too, because I have to get guests and I interview people. I try to get people that may never email me back, may never, you know, I don't know this woman, but sometimes when I do it, like you did two or three times and just persistent. And, you know, I have this thing I'd like to offer it to you. I'm really interested in what you're doing. And it works. And that's what happened with you. It was like the third. I w- and then I felt like a dick because I didn't respond the first time. No, no, not and, at all. You were never, was, you were great I, and gracious and so authentic in it. Like, I think you wrote, of course, yes. Exclamation yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I was so excited. And I, and it was because you were so consistent. And I appreciated that moxie that I said, this woman's got some interesting stuff. And I clicked on your stuff. And I was like, oh my God, this is a, and I thought she's, she's writing a book. She's writing a book. She's got to be writing a book. And, uh, you know, so, I, but I also want to just say to you as a, as a fellow woman and a fellow writer, <laughs> hello, there's, there's two other furry beings in this interview now. They've multiplied. <laughs> just, yeah. Um, that yes, you need a platform and yes, you need all of those things. And most importantly, you need content with heart that comes from an authentic origin of need to tell story. And you have that so beautifully and you do it beautifully and you've done it beautifully today. And so, you know, that's so nice. You can't see me because we had IT issues, <laughs> but I'm smiling. I mean, that means so much to me because that's really what I, I really want that. If there's people that jive with what I have to say and how I say it to, you know, to, connect because I think that's what matters. I think, you know, showing up and being present and authentic and available to, you know, share whatever it is that I have to say that might help others, then exactly. And it's like a good gig to me. Yeah. And it spurs them on to my little dog looks like he just did something naughty. I don't know what it is. I'm gonna find out later. Uh, It spurs them on to take those risks in their own lives, whatever it is, if it's writing something, if it's interviewing for that job, they're think they can't get like, to me, that's the magic of this. And that's why I do this podcast is to yeah, just keep spreading that like the domino effect, you know? Yeah, it's great. And what you said earlier, I don't want it to get lost in the kind accolades, because I want your audience to really hear what you said that 
I think what I said to you in the first email is I said, I spent all of 2018 inoculating myself against rejection. So I have to keep, I have to keep reaching Mm -hmm. out. And honestly, if you can learn to inoculate yourself against the, it's just our ego that gets a little, oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I wasn't, oh, she didn't like it. Oh, I don't want to bother her. Oh, I don't want to, you know, whatever it is. If you can just push right past that. Yeah. And and keep going. It isn't personal. Like this is a perfect example where yeah. you were probably I probably yeah. sent the original email and you were busy with Could something have been else. right after my friend just died. Exactly. You know? Something exactly. like that. Exactly. And that just keep doing it. Like yeah. I said to you in one other exchange that we had off um, podcast, I said to you something like, one of my only talents is relentlessness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. I yeah. just am somebody who I am willing to keep going when all evidence, statistically speaking, would tell me to quit. Yeah. And and listen, you know, the worst thing, and I'm saying this out there for people who are listening and wanting to take a risk or afraid to take a risk. Honestly, the worst thing that can happen is that the person says, no, thank you. Yes. Maybe they'll be rude to you, but probably not. I haven't come across one rude person. And I can tell you from 2016, I started applying to writers' residencies, trying to get into different kinds of podcasts, trying to get every blog I was originally, before I had an audience on my blog that feels substantial to get some traction. Before that, when it was like, you know, a hundred people were reading the essay, I would send everything to all these psych blogs. And first of all, most of the time you're just going to hear crickets. So, okay. They're really appreciative when they do respond with a no, and I have gotten <laughs> the vast majority of 2016, almost all of 2017, and 2018 mid-year, it started, the vibe started to shift for me. I started to like get emails back where I was like, wait a second, did they just say yes? <laughs> but so, you know, two and a half years of basically just hundreds and hundreds of no's a year. That's all it was. And every time it got easier and easier. And now I don't even bat an eyelash. My husband started joking. He's just the best. He's so positive. And he understands networking so well, which is something I came to the game sort of late to. He said to me, you should consider a written, when they respond to you with no, that's a win. You now have their email. Yeah. Like, he's like that they took the time to say no. So you can in a year or in six months or when you get another piece that you feel really might move the needle, you can say, hey, how about this one? And it's so true. I have a number of podcasts that I am in like that I stalk regularly, yours mm-hmm. among them. I mean, I was like so psyched when you responded. I remember calling my friend who's also a psychologist and we do some, um, we do some um, seminars and stuff together. And I, I said to her, I was like, remember that podcast? She's like, oh, yeah, I don't need an introduction to it. So I was like, <laughs> filling her in. I was like, she responded. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Yeah, so well, it's been great. Thank you so much. And um, I can't believe this, but we've already come to the time at the where I ask you the silly questions. 
Okay. But this has just been a delight. I mean, I could definitely go on talking to you for a much longer time. Uh, what, well, we'll, ha- we'll take it offline in LA That's right. in the next few months. That's right. Let me know when you when you come out. I will. So the, I ask three questions of every guest, and then I go into a lightning round of questions. Okay. The first question is, uh, what do you think about, Sarah, when you hear the word MILF? Wisdom. Hmm. What's something you've changed your mind about recently? Psychedelics. Oh, say more. Are we talking ayahuasca? I, no, I don't like throwing up. I don't want to throw up and I don't <laughs> want to be around people throwing up. So ayahuasca <laughs> is sayonara. Is that what it does? I don't even it know. It makes you throw up. Um, but I Ooh. hear it's transformative. Um, you know, I, I haven't decided whether, so I'm 40, I'll be 44 in a month. I feel like at 45, maybe a vision quest would be cool. Um, there seems to be something great about that, but I haven't committed myself to it, but I will say, um, I have worked with somebody who became interested in microdosing and she was Mm. a scientist herself. And so she experimented with it and the journey with her, uh, surprised me in ways unexpected Mm. and it made me really open my mind, no pun intended, to the idea that True microdosing may really hold therapeutic benefit for people mm. who have struggled um, in my ca- in, in the case that uh, I the cases that I see with um, depression. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Okay. How do you define success? I define success as feeling as though my career has passion and purpose and that I can support myself. It's important for me that I feel like I can support myself. And then in a global sense, success, I, I want to feel connected to myself. I want to mm. feel that I deeply know myself and therefore I can connect with others in the world. Mm. Great answer. Uh, okay, lightning round. Ocean Pets. or desert? It's a Sophie's choice, but ocean. <laughs> Favorite junk food? Um, pizza. Movies or Broadway show? Movies. Daytime sex or nighttime sex? Daytime. Texting. I'm too tired at night. <laughs> texting or talking? Well, I talk all day, so I text a lot with friends. Yeah. Cat person or dog person? Cat. Have you ever worn a unitard? I don't think so. Shower or bathtub? Shower. Barely ever bathtub. Ice cream or chocolate? Ice cream. On a scale of one to 10, how good are you at ping pong? Five. Most people answer five. Isn't that weird? Yeah. I don't know. It's just, I think, because it's just like a good neutral, like, yeah. I, I could do it, but I'm right. not going to slay at it. You know? Exactly. Okay. I'm not going to slay. Uh, what's your biggest pet peeve? Um, insincerity. If you could push a button and it would create 10 years of world peace, but it would also place a hundred year ban on all beauty products, would you push it? Okay. Say that question again. If you could push a button and it would create 10 years of world peace, but it would also place a 100-year ban on all beauty products, would you push it? Okay. I am going to say no, but not because of the beauty products. But I don't know that I believe that struggle is necessary. It's a necessary stage in growth. And so I'm not somebody who is seeking utopia. Mm, Great answer. Okay. Superpower choice. Invisibility, ability to fly or super strength? 
No questions asked. I've known it since I was five. Invisible. Nice. And what would you do with it? Lurk. (laughs) Be a voyeur, just like I am in real life. (laughs) Would you rather have a penis where your tailbone is or a third eye? I have always wondered what it would feel like to be controlled by a penis. But I think at this point at 44, I'm going to say third eye. What was the name of your first pet? Governor. What was the name of the street you grew up on? Grove Street. That it. So your poor name is Governor Grove. Love it. <laughs> that is a fairy. Is your porn? Is your porn star? Is she English? Maybe. Governor. I, I know. I don't feel no. like I'm that refined. I oh, feel okay. like I would have been like like a street whore. No, but like like she's Cockney. Like she's yeah. She could be. Yeah. I mean that, or I think I'd be like an old like Boston broad. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I should have thought of that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my God. So good. That's my alter ego. I love it. I love it. Sarah, this was such a treat. Thank you so much for um, emailing me and contacting me. And I really enjoyed having you on the show. And I can't wait to share this episode with This was so fun. I'm so glad that I I didn't take it personal and I persevered. Me too. Me too. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sarah. Tune in next week for a new fresh episode of MILF Podcast. Also, just a quick reminder, if for every iTunes review that you guys leave in the month of February, I'm going to be donating $25 to the organization called Lumos. They can be found at wearelumos.org. I'm really, really proud of the work that they're doing. Um, Also founded by J.K. Rowling another amazing mom I'd like to follow. And if you haven't already, go ahead and grab your free copy of Seven Habits of Baller Milfs on my website, milfpodcast.com. I'll be talking to you next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.